Hey, I'm Corey, the host of the official tapes, the unofficial Grateful Dead radio program for the official releases. It's a radio program which airs on a bunch of radio stations around the globe and highlights the officially released music from the band Beyond Description. Every so often we catch up and uh, see what's going on in the rest of the wonderful world of the Grateful Dead. I noticed a uh, new documentary is out featuring interview with uh, Phil Lesh. However, after watching the trailer, I knew I needed to catch up with the director. I'm Mark Moskowitz. I made a 10-part documentary called It Was the Music about Larry Campbell and Teresa Williams, but it's really about a lot more. The art happens after the experience, not during. You know, the art happens not when you see the great Picasso painting, but later when you're thinking about the Picasso painting or showing it to someone else or going back to the museum with your girlfriend to show it to her or whatever it is. That's, it's the transference of this from one person to another and the movement along and how it affects people. The experience, all Hollywood wants to do is give you the experience. They want the roller coaster ride and they don't necessarily want all that stuff afterwards other than for you to say, it's great, you gotta go see it. I loved it, you gotta go see it. If there's a lot of discussion afterwards, sometimes they wonder, well, maybe it's too, con maybe that'll kill, eh, you know, they don't know. But independent films and documentaries, especially documentaries and especially social justice documentaries, are all about the discussion afterwards. And if it's a powerful thing, you know, I mean, they get into your head for a long time. I mean, that's the art, right? I think the dead, I, look, that's, the, that's certainly the case with people who go to dead concerts. The art happens when you sit with four other people and you say, you gotta see this and somebody does and somebody says they did see it. And for the next six years, you talk about that and how music affects you and the change it's brought to you. Look, when I first heard Live Dead, okay, so that was, that was an album I got. I'd heard Anthem of the Sun was at a friend's house. When somebody had an album, you never bought the album, you listened to it at the friend's house, okay? This is, you know, 60s. But then when Live Dead came out, I bought that, so I had that one. Uh, you know, I can still remember the feeling of putting that on a little old, you know, flip down turntable and speakers, and you'd never heard that, that kind of record you had not heard to that point, okay? Um, you know, the live set and St. Stephen and Dark Star and this whole side and whatever. And it was the, the whole side of feedback, right? And it was, you know, I still think about that now. What path that, what that meant, you know? And, and, you know so there was the first Almond Brothers record, maybe, you know, around the same time. It was Crosby, Stills, and that. And a bunch of stuff came out right around then. I don't know, you know, that year, sort of 69, whatever. But man, that stuff... 6, 10, 15, 25, 30 albums, you know, Santana maybe that year. Um, man, that stuff was powerful, right? It was just unbelievable. This thing started, Corey, because Colleen and I saw a Larry and Teresa concert. Colleen, who who made the film with me and who's my sort of better half here, I didn't know what it was. We went because it was twelve dollars. It was near my mom's. It was near a good barbecue place. I say all this at the, at the setup of the film. 
We saw them in January of 2016, and they had just been out for a few months. They had made their first record together, a CD, and Larry had written this, most of the songs on it. One of the songs on it they do, and they do it a cappella, is Addicts. And they actually did that as an encore at the concert, and it was really, emo it, just, uh, it just threw Colleen, who's remembered that from her brother playing it and singing it many years ago. but. We were knocked out, it got into our heads and it changed us, she was in tears and something about that set that night to us made me realize that we'd come a long way in our lives to this point and all this stuff I thought that I'd thought about, about books and how that, what that meant to me or art or other things, politics and stuff, it, it, it might have not been that, it, you know, it, it was the music, you know, it was the music maybe that meant as much to how I cope with things and appreciate things and feel things as any of those other things. So those moments, they're as great as they are when they happen to you, are meaningful when they extend through other parts of your life, right? At the end of the concert, we waited because we wanted to buy a CD and we waited to the end of the line and to talk to them a little bit. Colleen's son uh, lives in Knoxville. Teresa's from West Tennessee, which is some distance away, but there is that Tennessee connection. And she was talking to Teresa about that. And I was talking to Larry. Man, they were completely themselves, just like they were on the stage. It was just, you know, you're seeing a couple our age in a long relationship, working it out on the stage, and anybody our age can identify that. And there's the great music that went with it. It almost reminded me of like, this is a crazy analogy, but like Astaire Rogers, you know, or something like that, where there's music, there's a relationship, it's all happening, right? And I said to Larry, I said, you know, somebody should make a film about this because in the, while Larry's tuning, Teresa tells these stories, or sometimes Larry responds, and they sort of work it out on this relationship works on stage and it has references to music from way back then and life as it went on and all kinds of stuff there it's a really good really great <laughs> he looked at me and he smiled and he said well let's talk about it here's and he gave me his manager's number i followed up I had started in 2006 shooting a film about music as a follow-up to Stone Reader, which was about books. And I sort of put it aside at one point. But when I saw them, I realized all the ideas and notes I had made for that film were crystallized in their set that night. It just, boom. So I saw the whole film in a flash. I saw it all. You know, I saw what is out there now, not in the exact form, but the idea of it. And then it was just a matter of putting the nuts and bolts together. That took several months and some meetings, and I had to pitch Larry and Teresa about it and, and get them on board, and get them on board in a way that would allow me to make the film I wanted, have access to them, but make sure they understood that the film was not going to be a bio-promotional film about them. It was going to be about something larger that was common to all of us, about the music that affected us through our lives, not just them and me, but millions of people and audience, whole audiences out there in different ways. And we were gonna have a bigger picture to it. And I think that's why they agreed actually, because it wasn't completely focused on them. Although 
their story and the intimacy of their story is all throughout to, that hangs on it. But there's large swaths of the series that move the topic somewhere else. And then we suddenly discover them again at another point in their journey. So as they're on the road, so, you know, trying to get through a year touring together for the first time in their marriage, I'm sort of pushing the story backwards to what this stuff was like in the 60s and 70s and how we got here. What, what they're doing is they're bringing all this stuff forward that so many of us listened to in the 60s and 70s. They were all fans. They all listened and were part of that music. Now, Larry's my age. He's a year younger, right? So it, it, we all saw the same records and the same records. So we all heard the same stuff, except he brought it forward, okay? What he brought forward was George Jones, the band, Graham Parsons, Dylan, you know, a lot of this other stuff forward that, that became what we call Americana, which is a crazy, dumb name for it. Was it hard to, like, figure out a way to get William Bell in or Tracy Nelson or, or Roseanne Cash and, you know, Jackson Brown? What? No, that was easy. First of all, a lot of the people are people that Larry backed and played with over the years or Teresa. So that, that part was easy. What makes their narrative worth it? That is a really difficult question to answer. And it was worth it to me because I was part of it and could see it. And that's part of why I'm sort of in the, in the film and, and, and I could see the delicacy of it. To me, it's not a music documentary per se with a bunch of interviews and clips and so on that you're used to seeing or a chronological order. It's a very present tense thing. You're not going to see very much archival stuff at all. And when people would watch it, and I didn't realize this until people started watching it, and then I realized this is why I made it. It's a film about two people in a long-term relationship, in this case, a 30-year marriage, and where they've ended up at this point. And for some of us who have been there and done that, it's a really sort of, there's a lot of things you identify with, both the joy and the scars of that, and you can see it. And I, that was something I thought that if we could get at some of that, we had something beyond just a bunch of great music. We had sort of a nonfiction, real life drama that had, for a change, music, right? Like a musical, a nonfiction musical and making that work. It's a very different kind of documentary or nonfiction film or it's even, it's part memoir, it's part sort of fiction, you'll see. It's part, there's some dreamscape stuff. There's a lot, just some reality sort of TV-like kind of moments in it because of their, the way we follow them and the access they gave us. There's some drama in their relationship and marriage at parts and tension. And, and so, let's see, I saw them in January, 2016. We were shooting by the end of March or April. I was on, we were on the road with them from April for a lot of 2016 off and on. And then I started editing at the end of 2016. And I liked what I had and I thought we had enough. And then, and I say this in the film, in April or June 2017, Larry went into the studio and they went in to make a second album. And... <laughs> <laughs> Foolishly or not, uh, you know, excess might be my middle name. I, I, I picked up the camera again and decided to go do that. And of course, when I shot that, 
And now we're a year later and I also knew what I had and we're a year knowing each other better. And there's a year difference in their lives and having been through this tour together and, and the stress of what this has been, a lot of other things came to the fore. And I said to myself, uh, gee, I'm glad I didn't make that what I had, although it was perfectly fine. Uh, this will be a much richer, deeper film now. So with that in mind, I continued to shoot through probably into the winter of 2018, 2017, 18. And then we cut and we cut for a year and uh, off and on and uh, well, pretty much on. And then in 2019, this is how long films take to get out there, folks. It's amazing. Um, you know, you think you can do it. You think you can shoot it in six months, cut it in three and stick it out and you're under a year. Never happens. Never happens. You know, we were finished and doing the mix by in late 2018 and 2019 was a whole year of various options, partnerships and other things to bring it to the market. Okay. On some false starts, but I th I'm glad we ended up where we ended up with it. And it was worth waiting a year to do it how we're doing it now, I think. The level of musicianship, Larry's level of musicianship, Teresa's level of musicianship, and the ability to just go any direction at any time at top level sort of surprise, great timing, boom, and still talk to the audience in an intimate, personal way, just, uh, you know, that's luck. That's live music. I mean, that's what live music can do for you that nothing on a record can do. I think one of the really interesting things about them is Larry grew up on the east side of Manhattan in a two-room rent-controlled apartment, okay? And not anything ritzy, but far from it, right? And he got really interested in the guitar and roots music. And the story of that is spread sort of throughout the, uh, the series. Teresa grew up in West Tennessee on a cotton farm where they weren't operating the farm anymore. I think they were leasing the land, but, but basically, you know, on that, and she'd pick cotton on Sundays. Not poor, but not privileged by any means. Her mother's a revivalist and she sang in church and they didn't listen to recorded music. First time she was in a club was she was 21 and felt, as she says in the film, you know, dirty afterwards, you know, as she grew up in a, in a different thing, but sang, but loved singing. And the family sang hymns and psalms after dinner. You'll see that in the film. And it's one of the most powerful scenes, I think. And they meet. She comes to Manhattan to jumpstart a, theater, a career in the theater as an actress and a musical and a director, and uh, which she studied in, in, in college. Larry is playing in this day in the Lone Star and City Limits, like, you know, the, the country music revival that happened, you know, in the 80s. And they meet and fall in love. It's like, you know, she comes to Manhattan. He's he's like interested in music of the South. It's like opposites. She says for Velcro. And I think that's really interesting. They just it was you know, a very love at first sight kind of story. And then the question is, how do you hold that for 30 years? Larry was on the road with Bob Dylan for eight years. She was on the road touring as Patsy Cline in a show called Always, which was one of the most successful touring shows ever that she starred in. And um, the fact that in your 60s, you're just not doing what comes easy and you decide to make a record yourself for the first time, write your own songs and go on tour and are playing clubs for 75 people for $12, which is how I saw them. 
that just was like so inspirational to me. You know, it's just like we're still doing it. We're still here. We can still pursue what we want. You don't have to be stuck in what you were doing or you can make these changes. You know, don't you like when you run run into somebody who's 35 or 40 and they were a, a software engineer and they've become like a massage therapist or something. They've just changed it all, right? They didn't change it all in that way. They were working musicians, right? But they took a huge risk here and didn't play it safe. Larry was on the road with Bob Dylan for eight years. Many of those things where he's listed as a sideman, he actually sort of, I think, helped make the records or, or you know, because he's his his musical talent for, you know, not only did he play half a dozen or more instruments, his his arranging. When we did the, the 40th anniversary of the last waltz is is in the film that Larry was the music director of at Lincoln Center. It's at Climax's episode 10. I remember being with him at some point and we were filming, it was like getting late night, and he says, you know. I got to go. I got to write all the horn charts for tomorrow. (laughs) It's like, you know. You know, there was no reason to me why Larry should be overshadowed by Bob Dylan in this film. And we should delve into eight years of him playing, you know, uh, Mr. Tambourine Man or Things Have Changed or, you know, whatever, Hard Rain. It's there. People seen it. Tons of people know Larry through playing that. They've seen him do that. So I wanted to make it get at the moment the piece of it that mattered to him and his life and so there's this there's a relatively short scene about it uh that that where we talk about dylan and what it all means in terms of that but we had to address it it's eight years of his career we had to talk about it every single other person i talked to i believe who knew of larry playing with dylan you know i don't think tracy nelson knew or cared but i think everybody else when talking about Larry and they would always bring up something, you know, about it. And they would always say, Bob, it was just Bob, <laughs> you know, Phil Lesh would say when Bob did this, Yorma would say, you know, well, one day I was playing with uh, Larry because he was opening, he was playing, he was playing with Bob and he passed it. You know, <laughs> it's just Bob. I, you know, I love that. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of first names that are, there's a lot of first names that we know are distinct. Madonna, Prince, you know what I mean? Where there's, it's like a unique name. But I love the idea that Bob is a unique name in this world. Right? <laughs> this will sound crazy. I didn't want, if I first struggled with a way to how to encapsulate the Levon Helm part of Larry and Teresa's career, because that's when they really sort of took off together as an act, and leave, and they will both give Levon a great deal of credit for sort of opening their eyes to what they could do together, and and they they loved playing at the barn because it, it was a, it was a different kind of thing. You weren't just out on the road selling tickets; you were playing for people who were passionate, who connected, and every night was like. Uh, Larry said, Teresa called it music utopia, right? And so I first had to deal with how do we limit that so it doesn't take over the whole film because it's leave on the band. You know, how, you know, what do you do? Or you can get lost in that and you can never get out. And the Dylan thing was the same way. You know, the key to the real, the, the real artists, right, want to keep moving forward and keep creating. And that's the thing with the people in this show. I didn't go talk to people who are just living on their catalog. They're creating stuff still. William Bell is he's 70s, 80 something years old. He's still writing and creating new stuff. Larry's like 
doing this stuff, right? Um, Yorma and Jack are out there making new stuff and reinventing it every day. Jerry Douglas, same thing. They're still doing new things and feel vital and they haven't just like laid back and said, okay, we're just gonna play the hits. Or they don't have any hits anymore, <laughs> but still. I thought Phil and Friends was like that, right? I mean, he, I, one of the things I asked him and he talks about, it, I said, what makes, how do you pick people to do that and what makes it work? And he says, I look for young people and what they might be able to bring to this music because, you know, as he said, you know, when Rob and Jerry were writing those songs, they were great songs, right? And Working Man's Dead, American Beauty, and that, that stuff. But Phil was always interested in the extended avant-garde, you know, improvisational, the extended stuff, right? So now that, you know, that he's doing, but within the framework of, of those songs still and, and, and extending it, right? It's, it's there's still... It still excites him. That was, you know, it was really something talking to him. He really, you can see it in his eyes. I mean, fairly amazing. Phil said that he, he ran across Larry when Larry was touring with Dylan. And there was, you know, there was that tour where the dead and Dylan were on tour together, right? Or at some point. And he said, you know, Larry, he says in the film, he says, you know, Larry just had all of this American music just tied up in him, just every single source and could inst instantly put it at his fingertips. You know, everything was just so extraordinary to him. And it really got, it really excited him. And so when the time came that when Larry, after he left Bob, that Phil invited him to, you know, play with him and, and get involved in Teresa too. I said, well, did you know about Teresa then? He said, no, I didn't. But she and Larry are like me and my wife, we're a team. And once I heard them both. I said, ah, this is great. So you know, I, thought, I thought that was really interesting. One of the things that's not in the film, but Larry and I did talk about, you know, you know, him being playing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of shows for years with Bob was, did he get anything out of that? What did he take away? And he said, this is the guy who more than anybody alive has mastered the American song idiom, what, what he knows about Dylan, you know, about American music and where it comes from, and he's never lost his passion for that. G.E. Smith tells the same story, who played with Dylan for a couple of years before Larry, you know, about it, if he would pull out a tune from the Civil War. Or, you know, Bromberg tells a story, not in the film, about Bob calling him at two in the morning and saying, David, what was that song that we played in 1947? It was a thing you and I played once and blah, blah, you know. So I think Larry spending eight years of that and where he was coming from anyway, it really set him to, I think, writing and reaching back and himself being totally now sort of a master of this sort of Appalachian blues, authentic country, New Orleans, gospel, all the true American traditions of original music, right? When you watch this thing, and I felt it when I was doing it, but I was all involved because I was passionate about everybody I talked to, I wanted to talk to. It was like a dream to be able to talk to them and find out certain things and have certain things answered for me. So there was no, there was nobody in this that I didn't, wouldn't have flown across the country to do, right? And they were all not just good conversationalists, but some, in many cases, incredible musicologists and beyond, like could speak about the culture and make you think about things you'd not thought about before. Blind Boy Paxton, Jerron uh, Paxton, who's a, like Larry, a multi-instrumentalist and um, self-taught like Larry. 
he's played with Yorman Jack. He's played with Larry. He has his, he's basically his own sort of, you know, blues, ragtimey, country storytelling act. Spending a day in his apartment. He's a 78s collector. He's encyclopedic. He's only 28. He's, I guess John's probably 30 by now, 31. What he knows about old-timey music and his passion for it was just fantastic. That was great fun. That was great scene. Jackson Brown, deep thinker and funny and a great storyteller. Like you know, all the tools that we were having a genuine conversation. In fact, when we talked to Hot Tuna, Colleen and I were there with a couple of uh, freelancers from Jackson Hole who drove up to do, you know, second camera and sound. Colleen remarks that I was so into talking to them that I got so excited that I noticed when I look at my camera, the camera drifts. It gets unusable because I'm just getting into this conversation with them. After the cameras were turned off, and a mistake I usually don't make, but made it here because I was so excited. Or Yorm and I were finishing talking something and I forgot to put the camera on my shoulder because sometimes when you, as soon as you turn the cameras off, the real stuff happens and you gotta be ready. Colleen was in an incredible discussion with Jack Cassidy about the nature of hip hop music today and you know what young people listen to and you know urban music versus you know and, and white black and this and that and hip hop stuff and Jack's thoughts about that were saying to Colleen you know you just because the music's not for you you don't understand it and she had her own point of view but it was a it was a great discussion and if I was thinking if I wasn't so talking to Yorma who's told me a, a hysterical Larry Campbell story I would have just flipped the camera around and grabbed it but you know that was one place I was distracted because I was too into it but sometimes when you're too into it that's when the, you get the best stuff it's a gamble you know you get so into it that you're getting responses from people that are good and what you want but you sometimes when you're directing and shooting both forget shit am I in focus well fuck I didn't change the exposure you know like there's parts in that hot tuna interview where I just you know I spaced out on the exposure I mean we saved it in post but it was like what the hell was I doing there you know uh, anyway yeah Jack's way of talking about seeing stuff in the 50s and 60s, Ray Charles, these jazz guys in Washington, D.C., and how he got turned on, really spoke to me about how we were all audiences at one point. We heard these records, we saw these performers, and how he's carried that through his all his work with uh, the airplane and, and Hot Tuna since. And that really, his look back on a musicology way at it really was good. So having a chance to sit there and talk with him about some of that was um, a gift. That was a gift. Tracy Nelson, who has been one of my favorites since day one, and people don't talk about her now, but Tracy Nelson was, you know, had her own band before Linda Ronstadt and, you know, Grace Slick and all this, you know, but Tracy Nelson was, and Mother Earth, that was a big act then, and I loved them, and I loved her, and I loved all her records, and so we dug her up. No one knew where she was. It took me a while to find her. And she graciously consented to talk with us. And we had a great conversation. And she does, she talks about the dead. She talks about all kinds of things. When she first got to San Francisco, she was dating Steve Miller at the time. She went to school with Boz Skaggs as well. And that's where a lot of those people came from. And uh, she gave us some archival clips of her making uh, Tracy Sings Country with 
Pete down at his studio in Nashville at the time. There was this priceless footage. Um, so that was a thrill. Now, listen, every time <laughs> there wasn't a musician we talked to, I, William Bell in Atlanta, you know, talking with William Bell, there, there is one smart guy who's been in every part of the music business. And you don't know how many songs he's written that I've loved, you know, the songs that I've loved, you know, over the years. Oh, here's what I learned, and I learned it early on. And Colleen, who, who made the film with me and who's my sort of better half here, put her finger on it even before I did, was how much work it is and how hard it is to do something at the level that Larry and Teresa are doing it, or probably anybody in this film. As a concert goer, you know, I thought, okay, I'm going, and you know, that was a great 90-minute set, and yeah, they stick around a little bit afterwards, they probably rolled in here, they dinner, they're on to the next thing. No. They're there, how little time there is for real life and how hard the work is when you've got a tour and go night after night after night. And you've read about it for years, you've read about it, anybody who's read about B.B. King or Muddy Waters, anybody who's read about any of these bands, you've read about it, okay? You know it intellectually. But until you're out there watching it and seeing it and, and, and feeling it, you just don't know. And, you know, a show ends, at, they're out the door at 10, 30, 11. They had no roadies. It was just Larry and Teresa packing their own gear or with the band. They packed their van. They drive to the next place for a couple hours to get, maybe it's a five-hour drive or a four-hour drive or wherever we're going. They check in, right? They're up late. They got to get to the place. They got to eat. They got other stuff to do. They do a sound check at two, right? It, you know, the sound check takes time. There's stuff in between, and pretty soon it's showtime, and it's, you know, sound time, sound checks at four. There's just no time. There's no time, let alone, you know, Larry rehearses, I mean, to stay at the top of his game. Teresa's got to rest your voice and do stuff. It is, you know, I thought it's physical when we're out making these documentaries, lugging gear. I'm doing the same thing. Colleen and I are packing the car and physical going from place to place. It is. And we have to be on when we're shooting. And it's, it is physical and it's the same sort of thing. However, we're not the energy it takes to present yourself to an audience on top of all that and be live and good and perfect for 90 minutes, as opposed to us who can fix our mistakes later, right? I'll tell you, I was, every one of them, if they were on, I only followed them. And yeah, some of the other, yeah, I did see a Phil and Friends show and watched, you know, that that level of perfection. And I watched, you know, and, and yeah, Jack and Yorm and other people, but no. Uh, you have to be incredibly committed. And I guess that's why, you know, the best people sort of, you know, make it through. So that that was a takeaway. And it shouldn't have been because at this point in my life, I should have known better. But, you know, it's, you know, the people who are at the top are grinding and it's hard and they're dedicated and they're good at it, you know. And that doesn't even get you to the top in the music business. That doesn't even get you to the top. That gets you 75 people one night in the club, right? It's crazy. <laughs> People say likable, you think of bland. Nope, not bland. Like completely likable and engaging and you feel great every minute you're with them. It's just, they're, it's remarkable. And you can see it after the shows with fans and I don't know what it is, but it's some sort of special sauce we ought to get, find and get. It is the case. It's in the film and it's in real life and I don't know how, <laughs> how it is done, but it's not like they each don't have 
things in their lives and we, we address some of it that, that weren't so easy and were and leave scars. You know, um, there's they've both experienced loss um, of, 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 of brothers and, and other things. They, you know, Larry had in his earlier years, you know, drug addiction, things he had to pull out of. He and Teresa had all kinds of stuff that anybody will go through and two artistic, you know, super creative people to, yeah, will go through. And, but I'll tell you, it's just, they're a joy, a complete joy and inspiration. Mm-hmm.